Welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You, the bonus episode. Normally, we are three women who analyze and make fun of your favorite horror movies, but on this episode, we have something a little different, but very special. I'm Mary Kay, one of your regular hosts, and I was a literature professor as of last semester. While I was grading research essays for my last semester teaching, um, I found a few student essays that were basically finished, which I could tell because as I was grading, I forgot to grade and I was just listening and being interested. So that's how I knew that they were pretty much finished and that they presented really cool ideas. So I pitched those students the idea of proposing a panel to the Popular Culture Association slash American Culture Association Conference, and what you're about to listen to is that panel. All of our papers center around the idea of the monstrous feminine, and our panel was titled The Anti-Heroine and Her Journey in the Contemporary Horror Film, so we're still pretty on brand. Um, Real quick, here's the outline. Caitlin Hobbs, you already know, they're talking about the heroine's journey in Pan's Labyrinth and Coraline and Alien, and we have episodes on those, and she was also a guest on the episode for Pan's Labyrinth last year. Um, Selena Shanks is writing about the politics of fashion and feminism in the movie A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And Emily Rubin, you've heard me quote before when she was my student, so I had to do it anonymously on our episode about Under the Skin. And she wrote about the woman as a predator who subverts her sexuality to better prey on men in that movie, Under the Skin. Obviously, these are really heavy-hitting topics, so I tried my best to write about the monstrous feminine in Darren Aronofsky's film Mother and how Jennifer Lawrence's character is robbed of any agency. The last part of our panel is the Q&A, and honestly, that was the most fun for all of us, so make sure to stick around for that. And with no further ado, here is our live panel that we presented at the PCA-ACA conference in Wilmington, North Carolina in September of 2019. Caitlin Hobbs is currently a junior at Kennesaw State University, where they are majoring in cultural anthropology with a focus in folklore. In the future, after graduation, they plan to attend the University of Glasgow. Glasgow? Uh, Glasgow? Glasgow. Who knows? It's Scottish. (laughs) Oh, it's more guttural. I got it. I can't do it, but I hear it now. Okay. Um, In hopes to research the cross-section, research the cross-section between folklore and our psychology. Take it away, Caitlin. So to my right is Mary Kim McGuire. Oh, no, you can do yours. Oh, okay. Yeah, or you can, we can, what's going to be better for you guys? To hear it all individually or up front? Individually? Yeah, because then you can remember, like, who's who. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so. Okay, so I'll go ahead and start then. Yeah. So my paper is The Heroine's Journey and Its Representation in Horror. So everyone knows of the heroine's journey, even if they don't know it or the name behind it. It is prevalent in nearly every male coming-of-age story and numerous epics dating back centuries. You see it in the Odyssey, the Fasonga Saga, Hercules, and modern superhero stories. It's inescapable. But there is a flip side of the coin, a heroine's journey, the yin to the hero's yang. The heroine's journey is as much of a monomyth as the hero's journey, causing just as many (coughs) thematic tropes but instead of focusing on the male-presenting members of our society, it looks at the female-presenting ones. It is visible across the centuries of stories we tell ourselves about women and girls, even in the scary stories we tell each other at night. 
The heroine's journey can be broken down in seven simple steps, much like the steps seen in the hero's journey. First, the heroine must answer the call to adventure, whatever form that takes, be it a mysterious labyrinth or a hidden door showing up in near her new home, or answering a distress call on a distant moon. The heroine then usually meets her companions slash guardians, if she did not already have them, proceeds to leave the world as she knew it behind, or vice versa, depending on the story structure. At this point, our heroine is presented with her challenges, classically coming in threes, no matter what form they take, but these challenges always force the heroine to go up against the status quo and are introduced by a monstrous character. Upon defeating these challenges, the heroine is transformed into her new self, with a new self of new sense of self-confidence. The step can be combined with the next step, which is receiving her reward. It's not uncommon that the heroine gains a better sense of self with the confidence and knowledge that comes with it as her reward. But sometimes that reward takes the shape of earning a lover or regaining a new one, or, sorry, regaining an old one, or perhaps a better position in the society she is a part of. Sometimes, in horror, her reward is simply a return to safety. Finally, the heroine returns home and continues on with her new life, but not in the same way as she did before as she had transformed during her journey and learned more about the world around her. Often, as with the hero's journey, this monomyth is tied into a coming-of-age story, and with our heroines, that means including menstruation or menstrual symbols, where you cannot talk about biological women coming of age without mentioning it. In a sense, it is very similar to the hero's journey, except for when it comes to the trials and reward. For men, the trials are often based around strength and bravery, how well they can muscle through a problem, and the reward is generally glory of some sort. With the women, however, her trials are always based in intelligence. How clever she is, how kind she is, how willing she is to work toward her goal, rather than simply beating up anyone in her path. The proverbial brain over brawn. Her reward is different as well, and always a better, more loving home or true love. Glory takes a different form for her heroines. One can see this monomyth repeated numerous times throughout history, across cultures. We see it in Russia with Vasilisa the Beautiful. Vasilisa is abused by her stepmother and stepsisters due to her beauty, another common trope in mythology and folklore, and is sent into the woods for a bit of fire from their neighbor, Baba Yaga, who is actually a witch known to eat children. To earn the fire, Vasilisa must go through three tasks and is able to complete them with the help of a doll given to her by her birth mother. Upon completion of the task, Baba Yaga sends Vasilisa home with a skull with its eyes lit with fire. When the skull enters her home, her stepmother and stepsisters are burned away to ashes. Vasilisa eventually catches the eye of the Tsar and marries him, as one does in fairy tales. <laughs> the heroine's journey appears in Scotland with Kate Crackernuts, who follows a human prince under the hill three times and breaks him of the fairy curse that is put over him, as well as a curse that is put over her sister as well. She must deny the fairies the chance to eat their food three times in order to, make, to escape from under the hill and take the prince with her, using her cleverness to help him escape each night and to break the curse over her sister as well. Kate eventually marries said prince, and her sister marries the prince's brother. Again, another fairy tale trope. This monomyth even stretches all the way back to ancient Greece, with the story of Psyche and Cupid. Psyche, after making Aphrodite jealous for being too beautiful, is married to Cupid, hidden as a monster. After falling in love with her husband, but making a mistake in trying to determine his identity, 
They are separated, and Psyche must go through three impossible tasks in order to be reunited with him. All of these stories follow those seven steps in some shape or another, or with very few changes, mainly based upon the cultural lens it was created in. Within horror, a, nor a notable example of the heroine's journey is Guillermo de Toro's El Labyrinto de Fauno, known to English speakers as Pan's Labyrinth. It is arguably a modern fairy tale. It falls squarely into the category of magical realism with no room for doubt. And Ophelia, our heroine of the story, is young and in that between stage between child and adult. There are no blurred lines between good and evil. Ophelia is obviously our heroine battling against those, like her stepfather, Captain Vidal, as she attempts to regain her place as princess. We have Pan, or El Fono, one of the magical elements that guides our heroine through, the, through her journey, presenting her with her tasks and even tests her himself at one point. When Ophelia enters the Pale Man's Hall, she is forbidden to eat any of the food there, a very common trope amongst fairy tales across cultures. And of course, we have the magic number of three in her trials, which also gets more difficult and more demanding as she goes through them. We also have the magical symbolism of the forest, where Ophelia first finds the labyrinth. Forests have historically been, in folklore, a place where magic happens and journeys begin. Forests are also where protagonists are lost and are so often helpless, seeing no way out of their predicament. The fact that the story takes place deep in the forest is symbolic of Ophelia becoming both beginning and acknowledging the, the dangers facing her as she matures into a woman and earns her place in her true home. Step by step, Ophelia answers her call to adventure by exploring the stone labyrinth that is in the woods near her stepfather's base or her new home. There she meets her guardian, Elfano or Pan, and a new companion, a little fairy. Pan lives in the middle of the labyrinth, a symbol shown, showing one's journey towards wholeness, fitting for her heroine and this tale's purposes. She does not stay in this new world as she does her journey, however. She only travels to it during her three trials, her first having been having saved an old oak tree from a parasitic toad who is keeping it from flowering. To defeat him, she must make a, him swallow a stone, and she displays her cleverness in doing so, tricking him by mixing it with pill bugs, causing, it, causing him to eat the stone of his own accord, rather than strong-arming him. Her second task is to travel to the realm of the pale man and retrieve a knife. Like in other fairy tales, this is a place where she cannot eat or drink anything there or face severe consequences. She nearly fails as she eats a few grapes from the table, which awakens the pale man. Ophelia barely, barely makes it out alive from that trial, but she angers her guardian, Elfano, as she disobeyed him by eating grapes and causes one of her companions to die from protecting her. This nearly stops her journey in its tracks, but she still works to earn her reward regaining her place as princess in a place called the Underworld. Her final trial is misleading. After running away with her baby brother after the death of her mother, the third trial was presented to her as needing to use the knife she gained from the Pale Man to obtain blood for her newborn baby brother to open the quarter to her home. She refuses and ends up being killed by her stepfather, who is angered she absconded with his son. The sacrifice is what passes the final trial for her, proving her kindness and allows her to re-enter her true home as a princess as no true ruler would allow harm to come to an innocent rather than them. In her new home, she is welcomed as a princess and is reunited with her mother and father. But Ophelia's story is not the only magical realistic horror movie based around the heroine's journey. There is also a movie based upon a popular book with the same title called Coraline. 
This movie is also based in a world of magical realism and follows, follows fairy tale logic, much like El Labyrintho de Fano does. Our titular character, Coraline, is the curious 11-year-old who is already primed to become the perfect heroine for this kind of story. Our first view of her is with a dowsing rod, searching for magic, searching for a magic well that ends up being found in the circle of mushrooms, otherwise known as a fairy ring. In the Western European folklore, fairy rings are affiliated with under the hill, and depending on the region, fairy rings are where elves or fairies have danced. If one enters the ring, one could see and enter their dance, and possibly enter their realm, a dangerous place for humans. In the beginning of the movie, she has just moved into a new apartment with interesting neighbors, like a circus mouse trainer, two aging actress sisters, the landlady's grandson who gives Coraline a mysterious button-eyed doll that he found that looks exactly like her. This doll represents our call to adventure, as it shows in the way of fairy tales, a small wallpapered and pricked up door in the house. That night, a mouse awakes Coraline and leads her to the small door, which has magically opened up and now leads to a parallel world, where everything is the same and better, but not quite right and full of button eyes, controlled by a woman named Other Mother. This is Coraline's first time through the door, fulfilling step three, leaving the ordinary world behind. Despite warnings given to her by mice and a foreboding omen about how her landlady's twin disappeared mysteriously from the same house, she visits a second time the following night. She will visit one more time of her own free will before things go wrong, fulfilling the previously mentioned rule of three for these situations. She has to fight to return to her true home as it was before, and the true horror begins. She fulfills the second step in the third visit she takes to see other mother, her guardian taking the form of a black cat she has seen in her true home, that has the ability to talk to her. He shows up just as her challenges are being presented by her, presented to her by Other Mother, and it is during this time that we learn Other Mother's true name from three gross children, La Belle Dame, which technically means that she's just an old hag, an old witch, but it could also be a reference to the poem La Belle Dame Sans Merci, about a fairy woman who enthralls knights and steals them away. The other mother enthralls children and steals them away. So there's a very easy parallel being made there. The three children task her with the quest as well, finding their eyes so they can return home and die in peace. She manages to escape other mother, but upon returning home, she discovers her true parents have been taken away and is hidden now by the monstrous looking other mother. And so she returns, a hagstone in hand to see the truth of the world with and proposes a game with Other Mother, another common folkloric element in relation to fairy tales. Coraline must find all three children's eyes and her parents before the moon disappears, or else she must be loved by Other Mother forever and accept her button eyes. This is the form her challenges take. Within each of these places, Other Mother creates for her, hides three eyes in a different form, and Coraline must use all of her cunning and cleverness and bravery she has within her. It takes all she has within her to, and the help of her hagstone before it was stolen by other mother. And the black cat, she succeeds to retrieve all three eyes after outsmarting the people and the things that were once created to entice her to stay. Freeing her parents and returning home with them was a bit harder as they were in the center of other mother's web. She still succeeds and returns home safe and sound, transformed with a newfound sense of maturity and self-confidence with her parents not remembering a single thing about the entire event. Writing Coraline's story is just childish imagination. Her life has not yet returned to normality, as there is the issue of the key to the hidden door. As long as the key exists, there is always a possibility that another child may go through the door and meet the same fate. 
Just because one went through a terrible experience doesn't mean others must do the same. A heroine makes the world a better place for others. So Coraline, the cat, and the landlady's grandson take the key to the old deep well. After a final struggle against other mother, they succeed in tossing the part of her that made it through the door and the key down the well to never be seen again, thus finishing her journey out with her newfound maturity and appreciation for her neighbors and parents. But the heroine's journey does not just fit into horror movies based in natural realism that have strong fairy tale connotations. The genre-changing cult classic film, sci-fi film, in 1979, Alien, also has a monument of the heroine's journey with her. <coughs> Our heroine is Ripley, a warrant officer in stasis with her crew on a spaceship returning to Earth. Her call to adventure, besides accepting the mission that sent her to space in the first place, is the ship waking them up after receiving a distress call from the nearby moon. Her companions are the crew members she is working with, and the ship's cat, Jones. The crew explores the moon, and they are thrust into a figurative new world with the discovery of alien eggs upon the ship sending out the distress signal. One of the eggs hatched when disturbed and launches a facehugger at one of the crew members, thus beginning the horror story. Ripley, our heroine, tries to keep them off the ship, and rightfully so, knowing what comes next, but the head science officer overrides her. Thus begins Ripley's trials. The facehugger falls off and dies, but not be before planting a baby alien inside the crewman. The baby bursts out of the crewman's chest, killing him, and is released into the ship, slowly picking off her crewmates until only Ripley and the ship's cat Jones are left. However, the alien is not the monstrous character that is presenting the challenges to Ripley. It is the corporation they work for that has orchestrated the entire thing. The head science officer, who turns out to be an android, reveals before being shut down that he was tasked to ensure the alien taken back at any cost, including the cost of the crew's lives. In this situation, the monster is not the creature simply following his nature, but the cold corporation that wants the, <clears throat> that wants the creature to perform, to possibly use it for bioweapons. Our heroine finally attempts to destroy the alien by setting the ship to self-destruct and narrowing escaping in a shuttle with Jones. But the alien manages to get onto the shuttle as well, and finally manages to jettison the alien out of the airlock and into the shuttle's engine exhaust, finally killing the alien. The cat survives. During all of this, the Ripley during all of this, Ripley doesn't go through transformation as much as her first two heroines, but not in the same way. Instead of having her worldview affirmed like our other two heroines, she has her belief in the world and the people around her stripped down and rebuilt into only trust in herself, with the discovery that her employees sent all of this up with no regard for the employee's life. She becomes someone who relies only on herself and takes the final girl trope to the next level, where instead of running screaming, she runs and curses her situation, her employers, and the alien itself. Instead of getting lucky in her situation, she takes matters into her own hands, fitting our heroine mold by using her cunning and bravery to defeat the alien. Her reward is combined with her return to normal life, as she wins her continued survival against the alien, plus a cat that helped her survive the ordeal. At the end of the movie, we see her return to stasis with Jones for her help to the Earth, and hopefully a return to normal life after her heroine experience. The heroine's journey is not the only monomyth out in world culture today, and it doesn't end at the heroine's journey either. One could try and argue that they are the same, but it would be incorrect to do so. Women have different expectations placed upon them and view the world in a different way. While hero may be a gender-neutral term, the journey is not. And monomyths do not end with these two either. 
They are simply the ones that ring truest with humans today, as every now and again we need a reminder that it's possible to fight against true evil and win, even if you aren't the strongest or cleverest or most cunning. Sometimes all you need is a willingness to try and push against the dark in whatever form it takes. Thank you. So, now I'll introduce Mary Kay McBriar to my right. Mary Kay McBriar is a horror enthusiast, sideshow lover, prose writer, and literature professor from the south of Atlanta. Her book, America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of the Monster, is now available for pre-order. You can read her posts on Book Riot, and you can hear her analysis and jokes about scary movies on her blog and the podcast she co-founded, co -founded, Everything Trying to Kill You. And you were on that once. I she was. was I asked one yes. time. That's great. Thank you, Caitlin. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm Mary Kay, and I'm going to be talking about the movie Mother, um, and specifically feminine monstrosity in Darren Aronofsky's horror film Mother, um, and pulling a little bit off of the monomyth that you mentioned, but not necessarily just the one, like you said, yeah. at the end, like there's more. So thank you for that beautiful segue. Okay, um, so most viewers' reactions to Darren Aronofsky's film Mother are ambivalent. We definitely feel something strongly, but what exactly we feel is not easily pieced together. Part of this dissonance is due to the allegorical nature of this horror film as it symbolizes the Abrahamic creation myth. And part of this disconnect is due to the ambiguity of which character should be our protagonist. By all deductive logic, her, played by Jennifer Lawrence, and okay, so they don't have names, so it's just her and him, and I'm gonna continue to be like Jennifer Lawrence, but I'm not talking about Jennifer Lawrence, just the character, because they don't have names, okay. By all deductive logic, her, played by Jennifer Lawrence, should be our heroine, but the journey itself does not really belong to her. Rather, her heroine's journey and subsequent martyrdom are parts of the larger and thereby more important hero's journey. She functions essentially as the hell or underworld into which the hero, in this case him, played by Javier Bardem, my one true love, must descend <laughs> according to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey trajectory. Um, her martyrdom and willingness to be martyred inspires fear in the viewer not only through the horror of what actually happens to her at his behest, but the terror of knowing that a patri patriarchal cycle like the world in which we live will, or at least could, require this sacrifice of every woman as a step for her male counterpart to achieve his apotheosis. According to the film's exposition, the narrative of Mother should be her story, and by extension, the narrative should be her journey, though it begins with the confusion in the burning of another woman and the regeneration of the house itself. Her is the character who wakes in the bed and whom nearly every shot follows. Like, seriously, that whole beginning is follow shots, and it's very jarring. Anyway, um, it even begins with the first stage that Maureen Murdoch outlines in the heroine's journey, she is separated from the feminine. So first a man, a stranger, enters her house at the welcome of her own husband, and then his wife invites herself in as well. The woman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, is the character who most isolates her from her femininity, asking very direct personal questions about her sex life and childlessness. We are made to infer as well that her is our protagonist because she regenerates the home, and not only because him says directly that, and this is a quote, she breathed life into every room. 
but also because at numerous times we see her lean into the walls of the house, like physically lean into the walls of the house and literally see the heart beating inside. This calls on the Gothic preoccupation of the home that Kate Ferguson Ellis details too, and this is a quote from, um, from Ellis. It is the failed home that appears, the place from which some usually fallen man are locked out, is locked out, and others, usually innocent women, are locked in. Um, we know from him that the house formerly burned down, and it is only because of her efforts that it stands again. For all these reasons, this symbolic Eden, the house itself, should be her paradise. And yet we know intuitively that the haven will be short-lived. We just saw that woman burning <laughs> and in the opening scenes, and we see the Victorian mansion rising from her ashes. Plus, we see one woman burn and another one wake up in bed. Both heroes and heroines' journey are cyclical, establishing a new status quo at their ends, only to be recycled on end. According to the heroine's journey as outlined by, again, Maureen Murdoch, though, her narrative should end with the heroine integrating her masculine side into her femininity, but that is not what happens. Instead, her yields completely to him. What that means is that rather than even have her own journey, she is just a stop on his journey. Joseph Campbell says in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and you guys, this is my favorite, and I'm saying that very sarcastically. Um, the mythological figure of the universal mother imputes to the cosmos the feminine attributes of the first nourishing and protecting presence. She is also the death of everything that dies. The whole round of existence is accomplished within her sway. From birth through adolescence, maturity and senescence to the grave. She is the womb and the tomb. And this is my favorite part. The sow that eats her pharaoh. He's such a great guy. Um, essentially, on the hero's journey, the woman is just a stop. She functions as a setting. She destroys his home, but she also creates it, and not necessarily in that order. We see this happen in the film as well, when her, when her has labor pains. She shakes the entire house when she screams in contractions. She is not his destination. She is one step on a many-featured journey, and his journey is not the same as hers. One would think or hope that they overlap or incorporate each other, but his journey has no room for compromise. She says, make them go, please, many times, but he does not. Though she does surrender to his will, she fights it as long as she can, saying things like, I want to be alone with you. And finally, I gave you everything and you gave it away. In the allegorical reading of this film, her wants are sacrificed for his wants, but because what she wants most of all is to make him happy, she is glad to murder herself for him, even though she realizes it is self-sabotage. She even says so directly to him just before she blows the house and everyone in it to smithereens. You never loved me. You just loved how much I loved you. Rather than deny it, he only half-heartedly attempts, attempts to prevent her self-immolation, though he knows that her death is instrumental and necessary in his own journey. It's very much like, no, don't, please stop. Yeah, okay. Um, when she does set the house on fire, her essentially, her essentially, it's really weird reading pronouns, it's names. Um, her essentially demolishes the Eden she has created. When he does not go up in flames, she asks, and this is the creepiest part, right? What are you? And he replies in cryptically omnipotent, godlike language, I am I. When she asks what she is, he says, you are home. 
that is a very scary concept for a woman's purpose to be a dot on a map in a hero's journey. Campbell states, remember him, he's great. Um, Woman represents the totality of what can be known. The hero is the one who comes to know. Woman is the guide to the sublime acme of sensuous adventure. The hero who can take her as she is, without undue commotion, but with the kindness and assurance she requires, is potentially the king, the incarnate god of her created world. Though common allegorical interpretations of the film associate the titular character with Mother Nature, in truth, it is Mother Nature who is reductively named for this tempestuous personality type. She is an inconvenience to the plans of other, more important male people. Her role is to serve as this inconvenience. In, like, she's an obstacle to be overcome, essentially. Um, in the apotheosis allegorical interpretation, Mother is Eve, the one who created who <laughs> the one credited for causing humankind's expulsion from Eden. But that signified does not really line up with the signifier. Rather than be Eve, her is Eden herself. The woman, Michelle Pfeiffer, can be Eve, particularly as she wreaks havoc through the house itself. Um, she denies mother her own femininity when she claims she can never know what grief feels like unless she loses a child. And furthermore, she says, you give and you give and you give, and it's never enough. Kate Ferguson Ellis states of the Gothic novel, either the home has lost its prelapsarian purity and is in need of recidification, I mispronounce that word every time, um, in need of recidification, or else the wandering protagonist has been driven from the home in a grotesque reenactment of God's punishment of Satan, Adam, and Eve. It is not the sin which is required of women in the hero's journey, but rather the setting for it. Without women, none of the important stuff can happen, and yet they also maintain responsibility for the desecration that happens to them. Essentially, this woman-made Edenic paradise is also what Carol J. Clover identifies as the terrible place of the horror film. She says, most often the terrible place is a house or tunnel, and we have both, in that movie, um, in which victims sooner or later find themselves in a venerable element of horror. What makes these houses terrible is not just their Victorian decrepitude, which we have, I mean, it just burned down, um, but the terrible families, murderous, cannibalistic, which we have with the, you know, the brothers uh, that occupy them. We definitely have all those elements present in the house that mother builds, from Cain and Abel, the allegory of the son that died in his arms, to the sacrifice and perversion of the Holy Communion rite that happens with her son. Um, and though it is certainly allegorical, this film is first and foremost horror. On every level, from the literally visceral to the existential to the feminist, it is scary. And who wants to have no agency at all in her own journey? While Mother is an allegory for the expulsion from Eden, it is not in the way that we've seen it done before. The action is rendered as the fall from grace, the impossibility of salvation, because he must create by whatever means necessary. But it's scary to women viewers for additional reasons. In her text, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is the best title I've ever heard in my whole stupid life, um, Carol J. Clovers also says, the monster is an insider, a man who functions normally in the action until at the end his other self is revealed. In short, they may be recognizably human, but they are only marginally so, just as they are only marginally visible to their victims and to us, the spectators. 
In one key respect, however, the killers are superhuman, their virtual indestructibility. So although the woman is destructible, replaceable, and necessary as a martyr, essentially this godlike man requires her sacrifice for his survival. What's worse is that he will convince her to do it to herself. And that is the ultimate horror of mother. Not only will women, by extension of this Eve or Eden character, be destroyed for his cause, but we will be complicit in our own demise. Next, we have Emily Rubin. Emily. Emily Rubin is a current sophomore journalism and emerging media major at Kennesaw State University. She is a writer for the online newspaper Her Campus, as well as a writer for the Kennesaw State paper The Sentinel. Yay, Emily. <coughs> so, my paper. Um, Can you speak up a little bit, please? I'm sorry. Yeah, so my paper doesn't really address the heroine's journey, but it definitely fits into um, women in the horror films. So it's about um, Jonathan Glazer's film Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson, who plays every role that she can get her hands on. And specifically, it's about men's sexualized view of women as a monster to men and women in the film Under the Skin. So in the 2013 film Under the Skin, directed by Jonathan Glazer, one of the monsters lies in the men's sexualized view of the woman. All but one man that gets in her car does so expecting sex. While this sexualization may not be a physical monster, it still evokes fear from the audience because of how real it is in an average life. The men's sexualized view of the alien woman, which is Scarlett Johansson's character, is a monster not only to themselves, but to her as well because it leads them to their own deaths at the end of the film, and it leads to hers. Through the sexual through the sexualization and sexual objectification of the alien woman, the male victims become vulnerable and are led to their demise. The monster lies not in the men, but in their sexualized views. So sexualization and sexual objectification in Under the Skin come into play when the first victim begins complimenting the woman. The man gets in the car expecting more than just a ride from the stranger. He expects something sexual in return. He sees a beautiful woman driving alone and flirting with him. During the ride, he takes off his hat and scarf to reveal more of himself to the woman and smiles in pleasure as he realizes he may have charmed his way into getting what he wants. An article about sexualization by a professor of psychology, Fabio Fasoli, states that although sexualization and sexual objectification are often used as synonyms, they are two different concepts. Sexualization means making someone sexual, while sexual objectification means treating someone as an object of sexual desire. The first victim's expectation of sex exemplifies sexual objectification. He sees the woman as an object or something to conquer sexually. When he walks into her home and watches her undress, he sexualizes her. The woman taking her fur coat off is viewed by the man as something sexual. While the, woman does not, or while the woman does take her clothes off to seduce the victim, the act of simply taking off a coat when stepping inside her home should not be viewed as sexual. This view the male victim holds brings the concept of the male gaze into the film. A chapter from Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which I got from Mary Kay's sources, um, about sexuality in horror films discusses the concept of the male gaze in film. 
Clover states that within the film, within the film text itself, men gaze at women, who become objects of the gaze. The spectator, in turn, is made to identify with the male gaze and to objectify the women on the screen. By having the camera follow the male's point of view at first, the audience sees what he sees. Before the woman even takes her shirt off, the man gets an erection and quickly undresses. Under the Skin flips the traditional cinematic style around and has the audience watch the man as he becomes the victim of his sexualization of the woman before him. Following in the footsteps of the first victim, the second man also returns to the woman's house and undresses. And one of the prominent similarities between the two appears when they begin walking into the black liquid, completely oblivious to their surroundings. So the black liquid is this pool that they walk across and as the alien woman leads them over. She's undressing slowly, and they're undressing quickly, and they continue walking, and they fall in while she stays above, and they basically just drown and die in there. So the victims blindly enter the women's house with the expectation of sex in their minds. An article by Columbia College Chicago professor Stephen T. Asma about the reasoning behind monsters and stories states, monsters can stand as symbols of human vulnerability and crisis. In this case, the sexualized view stands as a symbol of the men's vulnerability. By only focusing on the one thing in the front of their minds, sex, the men leave themselves vulnerable. They reveal more of their vulnerability when they undress completely. The second victim takes his clothing off without breaking his gaze from the woman's almost naked body. With his eyes and mind completely focused on the woman before him, the second victim does not see his surroundings. He obliviously sinks into the black pool as he walks closer to the woman. His sexualized view of the woman makes him vulnerable to her seduction and blinds him from the surrounding warning signs. The next victim, given more than a minute of screen time, defers from the previous victims in how he gets in the car only expecting a ride. The deformed man stops and thinks before getting into the woman's car. Only wanting a ride to Tesco's, the deformed man tries to dodge the woman's attempts at small talk at the beginning of his ride. He reveals he has never had a girlfriend, prompting the woman to stop the car. When he realizes their location, he begins to worry and explains he only wants to get to the store. This makes the deformed man different than the previous victims. He wants to get to where he was planning on going, while the other men wanted to have sex with the woman. Even when the woman takes his hand and guides it across her face, the deformed man remains insistent on going to the store. Because he has no sexualized view of the woman, he sees his surroundings. His eyes stray from the woman, unlike the previous victims. He sees the dark room around him and only begins to sink into the black pool when, he, when told he is dreaming. He walks longer on the surface than the previous victims, and the woman undresses completely before he begins to sink. His uncertainty and lack of sexualized view of the woman saves him from his death. Unfortunately, the other men fall victim to their desires and become submerged in the black liquid where death awaits them. Along with their sexualized views of, women, of the woman, the status quo and societal standards surrounding them make the men vulnerable. While the men and women never actually have sex, the men still fit the description of a victim. A paper by Professor Ali Raza Javed of the University of West England about male victimization states, male rape is conceptualized as an anomaly because it challenges, confronts, and contradicts the status quo and hegemonic masculinity practices. 
Typically, men drive the vans and seduce the women, but in this film, the woman takes that role. The men think that a foreign woman, confused and lost, has no capacity to hurt them. Because of this, they let their guards down. When the woman offers to take the men back to her place, the first two victims do not hesitate before agreeing. They believe the woman only has the intention of having sex with them. Women grow up learning not to get in a car with a stranger, especially men, because men do not grow up learning not to get in a strange woman's car, and because most men feel they are stronger than the average woman, the victims do not anticipate any danger. As the first victim walks naked and vulnerable towards the woman, he dies. The view he holds of the woman before him causes his death. The sexualization forces the man to focus solely on sex. This keeps him from noticing the black liquid and how fast he sinks into it. This happens to the second victim as well. The sexualization prevents the men from seeing the trap they walk into and leaves them unable to make an escape or fight for their lives. This monstrous quality of sexualization not only affects the men, but it also affects the woman they sexualize. The woman uses the men's sexualization of herself against the first two victims, but she is hurt just as much by the view. Social psychologists Felipe Bernard and Robin Wallace state in an article about sexualization that research has shown that sexualized people are perceived as possessing fewer traits of a human being. While the woman does possess the exterior qualities of a human, the audience knows that she is actually an alien and she's in a human skin suit. The woman does, however, try to fit in as human. The men certainly do not know about her otherworldliness when they go with her back to her house. Throughout the film, the woman tries to act human by dressing like one, trying to eat, and even attempting to have sex with a man. All of her efforts build up her humanity. All of her efforts to build up her humanity crumble each time a man sexualizes her. In that same article, the authors state that dehumanization occurs when women are depicted as hypersexualized through a combination of revealing clothing and sexually connotative postures. The woman wears tight-fitting clothing and seductively leads the men to sink into the black pool. While she uses her tight-fitting clothing and seductive postures to lure the men into her trap, she also tears down her efforts to be human by allowing the victims to dehumanize her with their eyes. The monstrous quality of sexualization that dehumanizes the woman leaves her vulnerable at the end of the movie. When the woman encounters the logger at the rest station, she realizes he sees her in a sexualized manner, even though she had been sleeping and not actively trying to seduce him. When she runs away frightened, he chases her. This differs from how the woman executes her other plans to seduce the men. In the scenarios she has control over, she walks slowly backward and undresses while the men follow without breaking their gaze from her. In the scene with the logger, however, she has no control and runs away completely clothed while he aggressively follows and tackles her. The logger possesses the same sexualized view of the woman as the first two victims, but he creates a more violent situation from it. The woman experiences the very real and human emotion of fear as the logger chases her and tries to rape her. After being dehumanized, she comes out of her skin suit and expresses human emotions before the logger sets her ablaze and kills her. Through causing the deaths of the male victims and leading the woman to her own death, the men's sexualized view of the woman proves to be a monster in the film. The monster lies in the view the men hold, not the men themselves. It blinds them and leaves them vulnerable as well as dehumanizes the woman. It affects both the person possessing the view and the person being sexualized. 
while not a traditional monster for, her, for a horror film. The sexualization succeeds in evoking fear from the audience and how real and dangerous it can be in anyone's life. Um, lastly, we have Selena Shanks. Selena is a fourth year at Kennesaw State University studying entrepreneurship with a special interest in hospitality. This 20-something enjoys crying, skateboarding, and writing the obligatory biography boasting her special talents, which include but are not limited to balancing a spoon on her nose and never making over a 100 when bowling. That's hard, y'all. Bowling is hard. <laughs> I try. Like, I really do. Me bowling is easier. I ask for the bumpers. Okay. Um, so, my paper is basically an analysis of a vice film by Anna, or, yeah, so Anna Louis Amarpour. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, so, in our films, they kind of connect because it's kind of doing like, it's veering away from the monster being typically male and the monster in this movie is female um but also kind of a badass um <laughs> so i use basically folkloric um details and cultural norms to kind of like talk about what it's really saying because anna lily Amarpour tries to say it's just a western with a vampire but i call bull on that too it's deeper than that um so a feminist vampire in iran Anna Lily Amarpour is a girl walks home alone at night. Women in theocratic countries, often against westernized thought, can protect themselves while respectfully protesting gender inequality that is thought to be produced under traditional or religious ideals. Anna Lily Amarpour, an English-born Iranian-American filmmaker, uses the fictional story of a feminist vampire in a city full of unsavory characters to show women can maintain protection and control over their lives instead of submitting under oppression. Amirpour's debut feature film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, depicts the vigilantist, anti-heroine, known only as the girl, as a vampire, a creature who, according to folklore, only answers to their needs and will to survive. Amirpour does an excellent job producing both folkloric and cultural details that show themselves as metaphors for oppression and defending women against inequality. The details strongly support one of the central themes of this film, women fighting oppression and embracing their equality for the edification of each other. Amirpour chose to use the vampire within her story to rebel against the traditional social norms placed on women and the gender-based identity they are given. Vampires, according to Mirja Lapalti, an expert in cultural tradition research, often strive solely for their own satisf satisfaction. These creatures of the night are often found with characteristics such as being pale, unable to move in the daylight, and having sharp canines used to slay their victims. The vampire can often symbolize the promise of unlimited freedom of action as well as the internal struggle of good and evil. The girl uses her vampiric nature, such as seduction, enhanced predatorial sense, and stealth to hunt down the men who force their authority and will over women within the film's fictional town, Bad City. She chooses her victims solely on their treatment of others, but in particular women. When the woman under the protection of the girl finds out she's being watched, she hopes to find out her protector's true intentions. During a conversation, the woman known as Ati first asks the girl if she is religious and if that's why she follows her, believing it's likely she just wants to convert her or force her to submit to the cultural traditions of Islam. By the way, it's set in Iran. I don't know if I said that. I think I did. Um, just in case. 
After denying religious involvement, the woman begins to lament and confide that she has lost hope. It is clear she hates the oppression she faces, not only due to her profession as a sex worker, but also as a woman. It is in these scenes that the viewers can see Anna Lily Armour's hidden vision for a girl walks home alone. At night, a film that defends women while respectfully rebelling against the theocratic traditions of the Islamic Republic of Iran, using traditional wardrobe to give characters motive and promote the setting. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night's wardrobe pays homage to the traditional wardrobe of Islamic countries determined by Sharia or Islamic law. The women within the movie are seen with traditional garb often worn in public by Islamic women. The shayla, a garment used to loosely cover a woman's neck and hair, is worn by the sex worker Ati. The Shador is utilized by the girl as a cape, often worn by vampires throughout the folklore. The Shador is more specifically defined as a long cape-like veil that hangs down just above the waist and covers the hair, neck, and shoulders completely. So viewers who may be ignorant to Islamic customs may assume that the wardrobe used has done so incorrectly. Um, it's just a vampire movie after all. But most believe it's actually, or it's because it's forced upon them as a dress code given by the government. In fact, there are times the women in these Islamic countries often follow the dress code out of respect for their culture and in most cases their faith. Lily Amirpour chose the character's wardrobe to deviate from how the Shayla and Shador are traditionally worn. Ati wears her scarf loosely around her hair, similar to that of the Shayla, but respectfully removes it when performing um, in her job. The girl wears the shador open to closely resemble a cape. The shador is traditionally worn over the shoulders and held together by the fabric under the neck, but in the film, the girl often wears it fastened and flowing behind her. After the girl slays her victim, her first victim, her shirt is stained with blood, so she uses the shador more traditionally to cover the stains and protect herself and her identity as she leaves, uh, only to meet her love interest, Arash. In donning a sacred gar garment such as the Shador, she not only hides the blood of her victim, but also uses it to blend in with the cultural norms of her place and time. Arash does not seem frightened, only curious and somewhat weary when he sees her. The girl exposes the blood and allows him to see it as she returns to her home, almost as a warning. By using traditional garb in the film, Amirpur connects a vampire and their freedom excellently to the forms of feminism that are beginning to come forward in Islamic countries. Amirpur attempts to parallel bad city to a city in Iran where women are often seen in a lower class than men. She, protects the she protests the treatment of women by setting the story in a theocratic country like Iran where the rights of men and women are determined by Sharia. She can then introduce a character like the girl who lives by her own rules and defend the right defends the rights of women to show that a woman with agency looks what a woman with agency looks like and even values. Women in theocratic countries are adjusted to the domestic life, providing beauty among many other duties that are only ever seen within a home. The women are not allowed to lead in these countries and often hold jobs in lower positions than men from a young age. The people are sexually segregated <coughs> in schools, churches, beaches, and many other public places, reinforcing a class system with men at the top. One of the examples in this film is Ati. She despises her work but continues working because it is one of the only ways she could save up enough money and escape the suffocating life she endures in bad city. Currently, Iran's theocratic government relies on what the Quran dictates for the roles of men and women in society. Some scholars argue, actually, that the Quran was translated by misogynists after the revolution in 1979 because of the heavy restrictions of women compared to men. While every day there is a growing group of people hoping for progressive change in Iran, 
and other Islamic countries. Many believe in the nation built upon religion, especially the Islamic perspective that is inherently anti-pluralist, which makes the coexistence of Islam and feminism difficult at best because feminism is inherently pluralist. For example, some feminists believe in sex work as a way for women to take their sexuality into their hands and provide for themselves. However, Ati, being an Iranian woman under theocratic government, is left in a lower class, not only because she is a sex worker, but also because she's a single woman attempting to provide for herself. Under Sharia, Islam is the only belief system able to stand in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Anna Lily Emmerforce's film, The Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, is a work that helps portray the ideas of feminism in these countries. Exposing new ideals and educating others is the only way the progression of women's rights will continue in these theocratic nations. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a stylistic film that was created to tell the story of a feminist skateboard riding, sorry, Okay, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a stylistic film that was created to tell the story of a feminist, skateboard-riding, brunch-dancing vampire, but it is so much more. The details woven throughout the film were as small as wardrobe, decor, music, but most notably was the setting. Each scene, when analytically viewed, delves into a deeper meaning of Iranian culture and feminism. In doing so, Anna Lily Amirpour promotes the progression of women's rights and introduces ideals that could continue bringing into the oppression that women face in Islamic nations. Amirpour's various cultural influences create an incredible setting where the viewers cannot quite pinpoint a time but can enjoy the generational influences while watching the story unfold into a deeper meaning that one may not expect from a modern Western cross with a vampire romance film. With the help of folklore, Amirpour is able to use the vampiric nature and inherent freedom of the girl as an example for what she hopes women to one day be able to pursue and maintain. When a person uses their platform for the spread of unique ideals, it influences others to also pursue the bravery to take a stand. So while Lily Anna Amirpour says it's just a Western about a skater vampire, it is so much more. It educates the West and represents a whole culture that not many know about while containing dramatic statements on feminism. So we're happy to take questions or just talk some stuff about some stuff with you guys. If you have anything for us, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. About Under the Skin, I've not seen the movie, but I've read the book. If you've read the book, and if so, what do you think about the difference? So I have not read the book, but what I've heard is that they're very different. In the movie, yeah. nobody really has a name at all, and there's almost no dialogue. And so the only dialogue that really occurs is when she's picking up the men and they're making small talk in the car and she's basically trying to find out if they're here alone and if they're going to be missed. That's basically all the dialogue in that. So I feel like in the book there's probably a lot more and you can probably hear her yeah. thoughts and everything but there's really like nothing. I'm, I'm fine with spoilers but in the movie what happens to the men after the movie So it's not really shown, but you can infer. So they kind of like fall into the liquid, and when the second victim goes in, he sees just like the skin of the first victim, and it's just his skin. And then there's a shot it's so where it's just like blood going down what looks like a conveyor belt that just like keeps going forever into like this little tiny tunnel of light that 
could be their organs and all of their insides being harvested? Because I know that's what the book is about, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's been a while since I read it, but the men, you know, they're in the car, they're injected with something that knocks them out. They're castrated, their tongues are cut up, they're cauterized, and they're fattened up for food and sent back to, you know, so. Yeah. It's also on Netflix. It's good. It's short, too. Isn't it pretty short? It is pretty yeah. short, yeah. I'm going to follow up on that, because uh, I don't know the, the book in the movie very well. Um, I don't know the book at all, and I'm not the movie very well. But there's a point that you make in there about the male gaze. Right? And I forget the theorist to use, but it sounds like Mulvey's idea of like objectifying women on, on the screen. And so the book will probably not have this element in there, but it seems like the movie is actually allowing, so the, the, that view of you know, like, like possessing the, the female character on screen is for the audience. So even though the men in the film are the ones who are being you know, killed, we're still, the viewer is still allowed to objectify Scarlett Johansson, right? She's still, so, so the movie just kind of like goes through some motions, but then at the end, you know, when she, she dies, but the men in the audience are still allowed to have that capture. You see, you see the complicated way of going, like, so I don't know the book at all, um, and I wonder if the, um, if the movie is, well, if the movie, I mean, well, I'm, I'm saying, actually, I'm saying the movie allows for that still, that gay, so it's not actually a feminist film. It's still, it's just a, a little twist, but it's still allowing the male gaze. Does that make sense? Do you have comments on her? I don't know. Because I, I do know that it's definitely uncomfortable because the men are also naked. Mm -hmm. and, and that's so, a change, too. Yes, yeah, that's very so the men are completely exposed. Mm -hmm. So the audience is probably like, well, Scarlett Johansson is naked in this scene, but she's just examining her own body and it's not sexual in like the scene where she is just completely naked. She's just looking at like her skin suit to see like what is human. And then when there are the sexual scenes, the men are completely naked before she is. So they're like the first focal point is this guy's penis is out. So. Yeah, and that's and that's a and yeah. that's like that's one of the things like you know like men don't like to see men sexualized on screen, yeah. right? They like to see like comedic is okay, right? It's a funny aspect, but the fact that you, but you still see Scarlett hands and naked, right? Yeah, you still see her revealing clothing. That's still a part of it. And I wonder if that you know still comedic. That's all. I'm just I feel like it might just like enforce that because I know the film is very like self-aware mm -hmm. of what they were trying to do. So I feel like having that choice was really just them like being aware of how that would play into that theory and how having her be naked and shown in sexual clothing or sexualized clothing um, would have the audience looking at her like that, but then flipping it around by having the men naked as well. And just to pick up on the... Uh you know, Gaze Mulvey says that basically it works in two ways. One is to scopophilic voyeurism, where the woman is objectified, or she's turned into a mystery that is either punished, or it's not castration, or, or absolved, or solved, the mystery solved. And so, with the men, it's, you know, they're punished for the male names. Because, like you said, that's what they should kind of do with them, towards the men. It's also interesting that 
I don't know if the whole film was done this way, but I know that some of the scenes where she's driving around picking up the men, those are real men walking yeah. in the street. And so Charlie yeah. Johansson pulls up beside you in the street and says, hey, can you tell me what he looks so-and-so? And they tell her, and she says, well, can you just get in and show me? And so, yeah, some of them are not actors, they're real men. Right. And, yeah. you know, get in a car with yeah. them. None of the men are actors. Yeah. She is the only actor in the whole thing. And so that's the audience. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, it's a very self-aware thing with that. You know, I, I've only seen the girl walks home alone at night once, and that was a while ago. My memory is that there are a lot of very sort of strong American cultural iconic images with the cars mm -hmm. and the it's in, you said set in Iran, but that's ambiguous. That it was filmed in California or Northern California. The place, if memory serves, is not clearly Tehran or Iran, is it? Is mm -hmm. it or, or if it is, then the American cultural influence is visually mm -hmm. apparent in the characters. Well, so I guess that's fair. I feel like me personally, I inferred that um, because they're speaking. Farsi. I know they're, so, know, but it, one of the but, disjunctions of the film, I think, is they're speaking Farsi and there are these, you know, like the church door and they, you know, Of course. But then there are also these American... There are, because there's, I mean, there's the, the James Dean vibe that you get from Arash, which is a love interest, um, and the car, of course. Um, so, I would say that if you look back at like pictures of the 1979 revolution, I think that's a big part of it for me that kind of made me just go ahead and go with like that setting because um, I mentioned it a little bit, but the pictures of women then, they wear like the short skirts with like the teased up hair and they were a lot more free before that. Yeah. Um, and I guess when, you know, it I'm was- I'm the images from Persepolis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, that's why I think. Wife, so I'm wondering yeah. whether she was influenced by mm -hmm. uh, that. That's actually really interesting to think about. But so yeah, I would say that's fair. Not to say that it's specifically Iran, because I mean it's Bad City. That's the name of the town. Um, so it is kind of fictionalized. But I would just go based off of the other kind of like the things she mentions. Like there, at one point, there's in the film the the rich girl. Um, she has like her nose done and I feel like that's a thing in culture as well especially like the, the Middle Eastern um, it's a prominent feature is the nose and she's like ooh I've got my new nose at this party and apparently plastic surgery is kind of you know counterintuitively popular in mm -hmm. cultures mm -hmm. where the women's faces are never seen by anyone except their right so I would say that no, it's never explicitly said that it's said in Iran, but I took from it. That but it I think she allows up, and I think, I think that's one of the yeah. disquieting things about the film is that you know, there's an American audience. I doubt if it can be screened in Iran. No, really? yeah, I, I, I know it probably would be. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. there, yeah, there are some. Racy-ish scenes, but they're not bad. No, but the very fact that men and but, women are in the right. same scene, yeah, without exactly. Them, couldn't be shown in the Okay, I don't know if this changes your view or complicates it, but the way that I reconciled myself with the movie Mother mm -hmm. um, is that 
her is actually Mother Nature, hence the name Mother. Mm -hmm. So the Earth and Javier Bardem is this flawed god, which we can mm -hmm. expect from Aronofsky, right? Right. Um, and that everyone that gets into the house is just humanity ruining nature. Mm -hmm. And so the, the baby that she has is really like all of the species that go extinct, etc. And then at the end, nature just says, screw you, you're all dead. <laughs> right? so that's the only way I could even deal with thinking about that movie. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I have heard similar interpretations. Um, and I think that that focuses most, like, or so I didn't really touch on this part as of the movie as much because I felt like I had heard some like similar like I wanted to do something that I hadn't heard um, if that makes sense. Yeah. But like so I didn't really focus on the part where everything goes to shit when like all the people come in and they like wreck her house and everything. Um, but I definitely see what you're talking about about how that is um, humanity ruining this paradise. Because, I mean, you see it from the beginning, too, when they're, like, jumping on the sink, and she's like, get off the sink, yeah. right? Like, get right. off the sink. It's not anchored. I just told you what was going to happen, and now it happens, and get out of my house. Yeah. Yeah, like, she's just, like, screaming at everyone, and then finally it goes back to a little bit normal, and then it gets way worse when she gets better. So I totally see, like, her being, like, a non-renewable resource that, like, you let it chill for a minute and, like, come back, and then we just go ham on it again. Mm -hmm. Um, I totally see that. And I think that part of the scariness of this movie as well is, like, its ability to be interpreted so many different ways. And that's why, like, I mean, I don't know if you guys had this experience when you saw it, but, like, I got to my car and started crying, like, after the movie, and I was like, what am I feeling right now? Yeah. Like, I'm scared, <laughs> but also, like, unsettled mm -hmm. and a little bit insulted and mad on her behalf and mad at her. And it was like a lot of different feelings. And I think that's what makes this movie like both successful and so many people are like, I don't wanna, yeah. I don't yeah. wanna watch it. Because it, it is like you have your cult mentality in there. You, especially with like when they take her child and, mm -hmm. and, they, and then you have like the perversion of the communion, right? Mm -hmm. And you have the, um, the, they essentially sacrifice her newborn right. and put him on an altar and actually eat the flesh no transubstantiation involved like right. just cannibalism straight up mm -hmm. um so it's yeah i mean your thing works yeah i mean i guess I mean, like the short way of saying throughout it. the movie yeah. i was trying to think okay is she is she well known then michelle Baker right is she married is the baby right. jesus right but, but it's a lot of stuff that folds yeah. in on itself and it's not easily it's really hard to like get the narrative straight because and i know that this is like i'm paraphrasing the office here but like even narrative is comforting like you know like yeah. you'll see three images yeah. and then make the story out of them because mm -hmm. that's what you do but and i think that's one of this like and I, I say this i've said this to you guys before too or like you see a movie and when you see it you're like Ugh, that was intense and kind of scary and then like later when you're grocery shopping and trying to figure out what the best deal is something clicks and you're like oh that oh that's upsetting like it just yeah. it dawns way later because it sticks with you but um, yeah I totally see where you're coming from on that I just took it this way because I hadn't heard it yet and I was also trying to figure out how I felt <laughs> because yeah. there was a lot of processing right. too yeah. and then having like other smarter people be like you're right girl like you know put <laughs> yeah. that in there so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but thank you <laughs> Some of the popular YA, some, yeah, like Hunger Games comes to mind first yeah. off. Um, 
like it, some of the more recent ones like Divergent, that's another big one that applies to as well. Yeah, I've definitely taken a look into it. I haven't done as much because I kind of just started looking into it for this paper. But it's definitely I mean, something. It's interesting because we've had you know, the, the hero of the journey right. has been yeah. so, so done yeah, and being like a dead horse. Like yeah. Yeah. And like they kind of fit with the heroine's journey, but not as much, which is why I didn't look at them as much because like there's not quite the three challenges presented in the same way that you see it here. Um, like, I mean, she still does go through those challenges. She still does go through that transformation, but it doesn't quite fit the mold quite as well. Same with Divergent. Like, she still does go through challenges, but it's not as clear cut and dry. So it takes a little bit more of like delving into it, kind of saying like, okay, so what's going on here? Like, what am I looking at? Kind of thing, you know? Pursuant to that, one of the best student papers I've gotten in like 30 some years of teaching was someone who read the original Dirty Dancing through the manga. Yeah. And it worked. And it still works. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> I yes. it for you. No, I mean, I just it's... didn't think about it like that. Oh. Yeah. He's supposed to be romance, and it's not now. Like when you say it like that. Hey, no, I hear you. Yeah. Sometimes the awareness to, and the ability to stand up and have a romance yeah. is the braille. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> Mother, I love that movie. Um, it's, it's a great movie. And I, but one of the things that I'm, uh, I'm really curious about is the, the cyclical part about that, which I haven't really thought through very much, because I'm thinking, like, is cyclical the same as a closed loop? And so if you think of, um, about the fact that this is just the same thing over and over again, and there's obvious you know, Christian and so and, and patriarchal references, um, is, there a, is there a comment on compulsory intersexuality? That you know, if this is a um, relationship that women are compelled into, and it's not one they necessarily want, in this case, her would you know be that representation of the closed loop of always failing at this, and not failing or being set up to fail because it's in that compulsory heterosexual like view. And that's something I'm, I'm curious about with this film, like cyclical and closed loop. Are they the same? Can we think of them the same? Or are they different? Um, and that's part of the wonderful part about this film is you can interpret it in many many different ways, um, but I'm interested in the take on compulsory heterosexuality and her demise. Yeah, that's a great over, over. question. <laughs> that's a really good question. I think you asked like several questions, so I'm going to do my best. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, closed loop and cyclical, I think they sound like, I guess in like fundamentally they look the same, but I think it's more of a perspective issue on what's happening, right? Script. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, like, right. or like, like a spring. If you're looking at it from this way, it looks like a closed yep. loop, but it's constant. But it's changing a little yeah, bit every time. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's good. My brain just broke. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's cool because, and then she also thinks she's doing something new, right? Each one of them will probably think like, oh, this is my man. I'm gonna make his house. I'm gonna love him so much. And then, like, even when he gets that success, which is what she wants, right? She, he's, she's like, am I going to lose you now? You know? So I I like that idea. I, I like the part of the movie, the strip about how when you flip around, you're not exactly a mirror image, but 
you're not necessarily, you're still going to go back on that same route, you know, but it's, when you get to the end, it might appear to be different, because mm -hmm. maybe you're looking in a mirror, and you just see a mirror reflection, and only a slight difference, so that's a, I'm a, I'm a that yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And that goes in with your idea, too, of like yeah. a, a new person, but the same person, oh, we made it back, but totally changed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's cool. And then the second part was about, I think, orientation. Compulsory heterosexuality, yeah. Adrian Richard's okay. view that women are compelled into the heterosexual lifestyle, yes. and it's one that's not necessarily beneficial for them. Yeah. It's not mine, Adrian No, no, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. I um, make that up, obviously. I definitely see that, especially in the interactions between the women, mm -hmm. less so with the men, which is interesting, because I, th I think also it would be real easy to demonize either of the male characters if they were the ones being like, you should have had a kid by now. Um, like we see that in Rosemary's Baby, right? Like, in, and this movie reminded me a lot of Rosemary's Baby, especially with like the strangers coming in at the end. Um, but. I think that um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is really the one who makes her be like, wait, am I not woman enough? Like, you, you're you obviously doing everything, right? I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, so what is that? So, okay, so what am I supposed to do? And then she gets mad at him for not letting her, right? Like, that's when she's like, you want to have a kid and you, you know, but we don't have sex. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, really? And she's like, yes. Right? Like, that's what happens, is that she triggers him and convinces him to do what she wants, which is really what other women want of her. I don't know. I think I just talked myself in a circle, but that's a good question. Yeah. And that's the great thing about that movie. Yeah. Everything is circles all the way down the spring, mm -hmm. just like you said. I think we have time for, like, one or two more. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, your discussion of Michelle Pfeiffer and then your discussion of Ecuador, it made me start thinking, um, I'm currently working with a lot with the, uh, female instant poets, mm -hmm. um, Amanda Lovelace and McKinney Beale, and they use a lot of folk tales and fairy tales and those kind of metaphors. But it also made me think of an upcoming movie, The, the Maleficent sequel, mm -hmm. with yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, and there seems to be a theme that is running through this, you know, feminist, but sort of through the monstrousness mm -hmm. situation of that there almost seems to be evolving another step to the female heroine's journey, which mm -hmm. is don't let them take your humanity or your because you'll end up a Maleficent, or you'll end up like one of these villainous characters, you will end up a monster. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you see, or that any of you have seen in your work as well? There, possibly there is another step of, part of the realization is, don't allow the bad situations to turn you monstrous. Definitely, I can definitely see yeah. in like, like Ruby Carr's work and like Amanda Lovelace's work mm -hmm. as well. Like definitely, like you know the old age old saying like don't set yourself on fire to keep someone else alight. Exactly. Like that kind of thing. Yes. Like I can def I've definitely seen that in my work and like how there's starting to come forward like more about like yeah yes. like yeah like they're adding another step about like self care like take care of yourself yes. before someone else you know. But I've definitely seen that. That's a really good point. But yeah, mm -hmm. like, I didn't think about it. But yeah, now that you're saying it, it's like, yeah, that's definitely something I've seen in more recent works. Like, take care of yourself before others. Make sure you stay true to yourself. You know, like the old Shakespeare, to thine own self, to thine own self be true. You know, like, so I definitely see that now. Yeah, but, like, what, but what, I, what struck me in all of yours is that in order for these women to protect themselves, they have to become monsters. Like, even Ridley, yes. when she says, don't let him in, that's yeah, everybody's that's, like, oh, how right. could you? Right. But, like, but that's what she yeah. has to do mm -hmm. to protect herself. Exactly. And yeah. I, I, I just find that problematic that women have to become right. monsters yes. to, yeah. to right. protect themselves. And then you yeah. take it to the next 
aliens where you get the dueling mothers. Right, you know, yeah. Sort of right. The, you know, mm -hmm. Speciesism. Yeah, right, the, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, when she has a daughter. I think yeah. the resistance to letting them in, though, was more protocol. Mm -hmm. She was in charge, and yeah. she's got to protect everybody, not just herself. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, okay, she's in that mix, but it's mm -hmm. not just her. Yeah. But, I mean, definitely protocol, but like, still taking a look at it, it's like, how could you do that? It's your own crew, still, kind of thing. You know, like, there's, it is protocol, but we're also human nature, like, human nature is caring about each other. Like, it's very hard for us to follow rules protocol like that sometimes. Leave no man behind. Right, yeah. That's another sort of thing. Yeah. Like, our well, instinct. Dallas does override it, too. Yeah, exactly. But human nature is like, we gotta take care of each other, like, how can you leave them behind? You know, like, again, like, Another key thing is leave no man behind. Like it, it's still protocol, but at the same time, it's like you're a woman, how can you say right. that? Women are supposed to be nurturing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Like okay. if it was a okay, I thought it was more like they had they couldn't come out of decontamination. They couldn't be let on the ship until they had to be they had to be checked out. I don't think they were going to leave them. They were going to let the person with them. Um, yeah, they were going to say, yeah. Yeah. They were, they, they, yeah. She was like, no, I've seen this before. I've seen <laughs> right. the first rodeo. No, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. yeah. That was... Right. No, I'm talking right. about the first one. Oh, I thought we were talking about the second one. No, the first one. Yeah, the 1979 oh, one. Yeah. I heard, yeah. I heard the second one. I mentioned the second one. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. All right. So we're at 1245. I'm totally chill with, like, hanging out. <laughs> 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 I don't think you so much for listening to our panel and all our hard work. If you're interested in following any or all of these brilliant minds, I've linked to their social media in the show notes. And I definitely support reaching out to them and telling them how much ass they kicked because they really did a great job. On our next regular episode of Everything Trying to Kill You, I'll be rejoined by my regular hosts, Mary Byer and Rachel Estridge, and we'll be analyzing and making fun of the film adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And by making fun of, I mean, we're mostly probably going to be making fun of Cousin Charles because he's the worst. Um, but you can watch this on Netflix as many times as you want, and it's awesome, so you'll want to. Um, also, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps us so much. Like It helps other people find us. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>